Welcome all to Finrin's Wake. The following is an episode about Aristotle. I do hope that you enjoy. The year is 334 BC, and a new school for the teaching of rhetoric and philosophy has just opened its doors to the young, mostly middle-class scholars of Athens. Whereas the Academy of Plato grants admittance only to those of the privileged class and the wealthy elite, the Lyceum of Aristotle boasts a more democratic enrollment. It includes in its diverse student body Athenians of humbler stripes, young men more modestly reared, over whom the great advantages of high and noble birth have passed with unaffectionate haste yet by whom the riches of wisdom are no less energetically sought, nor profitably gained. Named after the great Apollo Lysias, god of the shepherds, to whom just outside the city walls the pastoralists still pray, this newest institute of learning is housed in the most elegant gymnasium in all the land, some say it was financed by the upstart, Alexander, the great general currently on campaign in the East. If the rumors are to be believed, the spoils of his Persian conquests and the booty of his Indian forays have contributed to the raising of this grand edifice of learning. Around it, Fragrant gardens spring, by whose invisible perfumes the delicious air is quietly sweetened. In every direction one steps, shady groves sprout forth to form a leafy canopy above, a tranquil ceiling of green by which the many walking paths or parapetoi on the grounds are invitingly embowered. Do you still wonder where you are? Are you still uncertain of the sacred ground atop which you stand? Well, my friend, allow me to relieve you of these questions. You see, you're on the campus of the Lyceum, that hallowed site out of which the limpid fount of philosophy bubbles, from which every seeker of wisdom hopes to drink. The renowned leader of this school is a simple, bearded man by the name of Aristotle, a polymath whose dazzling credentials quite speak for themselves. A native of Stagira, a Greek colony just south of Thrace, Aristotle immigrated to Athens at the age of 17. It was for the prospect of enlightenment that he ventured south, and for the love of philosophy that he stayed. He was, among other things, the son of a royal physician, the outstanding pupil of Plato, an alumnus of the academy, the founder of the Lyceum, the sage of the syllogism, the first real biologist, 
an honorary proto-Christian, and the educator of a conqueror to whom history is yet to have produced an equal. From his father, he inherited the habit of scientific thinking. From his famous teacher, Plato, he was imbued with the ineffable spirit of the forms. Thus, within him, the medical and the mystical, the biologic and the numinous, were forever in a state of tension. The one influenced the other, the other reciprocated in kind, and Aristotle's unsurpassed genius was the composite result. And yet, as we know from our own experience, a parent's influence far exceeds that of a teacher. It's first to impress itself on a child, and it always arrives when docility reigns. Thus, it should come as no surprise that Aristotle is, before all else, a scientist. For one's understanding of the world, he must rely on his senses and nothing else. Empiricism is to be elevated over the blind cogitations of the mind, and the airy, abstract conclusions on which that fickle organ is prone to settle. Reliance on the infallibility of one's reason, as was the method suggested and promoted by the arch-rationalist Plato, can serve as no guide to the attainment of true knowledge. Accordingly, universals, distinct from the specific objects they represent, have no real existence outside the realm of sense. They are, rather, inseparable from and embedded in the things of which they are supposed to be the higher and purer forms. Whereas Plato was at pains to emphasize the genuine reality of the form or the idea, and the cheapness of the lowly thing in which it merely partook, Aristotle denied that the form, outside the thing, really exists. The two, he thought, were inextricably bound, and the difficult word we use to describe this unseen combination of matter and form is hylomorphism. It was not Francis Bacon, but his empirical predecessor, Aristotle, who inaugurated the use of the scientific method. Though he was enamored of the graceful logic and deductive reasoning, and never let pass an opportunity to bathe in the rushing streams of syllogistic thought, he recognized the importance of inductive thinking. Of the two approaches to reasoning in science, as we know, Induction is by far the more important. And so, in time, he became increasingly comfortable generalizing from the specific data before him, from which more reliable and empirical conclusions might be drawn. Aristotle is without shame. Before our very eyes, without a moment's hesitation, he proceeds to disrobe himself of his physician's white coat and don, instead, the undulating garb of a metaphysical 
thinker. Suddenly less restrained by the ample flow of his new dress, and more free to leap toward the heavens and exert himself in every conceivable direction, he pivots his foot and turns his attention to the soul. In this most enticing of subjects, this most beguiling of topics over which countless intellectual wars have been waged, Aristotle is determined to involve himself. By what other means would he do so than by applying his categories? The soul, he says, exists on three planes. At its lowest, it is nutritive. In its intermediate state, it is sensitive. And at its highest grade, it is rational. No animate thing, in his opinion, is soulless. Only those things totally deprived of life, those things like rocks and pebbles, even the polished marble out of which Greece's finest statuary is made, lack a soul. Along with animals and men, the plants of the earth have a nutritive soul. By their very own doing, and without the aid of external help, they can receive nourishment and, with that nourishment, reproduce themselves and grow. They lack, however, the next grade, the sensitive soul, of which both animals and men are possessed. They have the ability to feel and respond to the environment in which they are set. Finally, there is the rational soul, the highest of the three with which man and man alone is uniquely endowed. Thus we find man, the highest of the animate beings, walking on two feet and thinking as a rational animal. But what of the claim that he is, perhaps more than anything else, a political animal? This, after all, is for most people the one enduring insight by which Aristotle is still remembered. That he is political is a consequence of his capacity to reason. You'll note, of course, that Aristotle makes no claim that man is a social animal merely. This would be stopping too short. Social animals, like bees or wolves or ants or lions, while intriguing because of their propensity to work together, have neither the thoughtful nor the voluntary compulsion to do so. It is an intuitive and unreflective act, completely different from the way in which men engage with men in an ordered society. Only men decide to combine themselves, to unify their interests, to sublimate their hostilities, and to observe duly constituted laws in ways that will almost certainly differ from those of their neighbors. In what ways, then, might that polity be instituted? In what variety of fashions can it be built? Is the number of its permutations limited, or can endless forms be conceived and added? First, it should be said that Aristotle regards government as necessary. It is the sine qua non of a functioning state, and nothing could be more unnatural than to dispose of it. 
It's not something to which we assent as a matter of convenience, nor a silly little game with which we jointly pass our time. No. For men, as we've learned, are inherently political and rational animals, and we can do nothing other than recognize ourselves as such. To that end, in order to establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, and promote the general welfare, government is absolutely needed. But what form should it take? That is the question. In pursuit of its answer, Aristotle reviewed the constitutions of 158 Greek cities. Among so large a multitude of examples, he was glad to find that three distinct types emerged. Monarchy, or the rule of one. Aristocracy, or the rule of a few. And a polity, or a constitutional government, which is the rule of the many. From these three wholesome and benevolent types, an equal number of perverse analogues can be derived. Should they succumb to the pressures of corruption, a monarchy will degenerate into a tyranny, an aristocracy into an oligarchy, and a polity into a democracy. These are the six possibilities of or political organization. To remember them, simply ask yourself, by whom, or by how many, is the power held? And, more importantly, for whose benefit is it to be wielded? Having studied all these various forms, Aristotle concluded that the aristoi, the meritorious and the ablest, were best suited to rule. Among this elite an enlightened monarch would be ideal, but the possibility of his degeneration into a self-serving tyrant was too horrible to bear. Only slightly worse than that would be the unguided rule of the mob, the ignorant, poor rabble in whom democracy unwisely vests her power. That, too, should be avoided. Disquieted by the thought of illiberalism from above or from below, Aristotle opts, as is his wont, for the middle path, a mixed constitution embracing the best of the three good types. Whereas politics is the science of the collective good, ethics concerns itself with the happiness of the individual. Ethics, from the Greek word ethos, deals with one's character, or the way in which one comports himself every day irrespective of the occasion. In acting a certain way, he develops a habit. In acting the right way, at the right time, and to the right people, he develops a good habit. This habit, or excellence, as translated from the original Greek, comes to us from Latin to mean virtue. Of the categories of virtue, there are but two, intellectual and moral. To achieve the good life, which, in Aristotle's view, is a happy life founded upon the practice of good habits, the moral virtues, more even than those of the intellect, must be highly developed. 
and just how many moral virtues are there? Aristotle lists four. Prudence, temperance, justice, and courage. Each is a golden mean between two vicious alternatives. At one extreme, for example, cowardice is to be found. At the other, foolhardiness. These two poles are then bisected by courage or fortitude, the intermediate virtue from which one should never stray. Just as there are four moral virtues, so too are there four causes. Aristotle moves us here from the subject of ethics to that of causality. The causes are simple answers to the effects we see in daily life. When we look upon a shoe, for example, and ask ourselves, out of what material is it made? We are inquiring after its material cause. In this case, it would be leather. Satisfied with that, we then proceed to ask ourselves, hmm, well, by whom was it made? That would be the efficient cause, our industrious shoemaker. Next, we ask ourselves, into what is it being made? Our answer, a shoe. That is the formal cause. And lastly, we ask ourselves, for what purpose is it being made? What, in other words, is the shoe's end, the ultimate goal of its formation? For the support and protection of its wearer's foot, I should think. And here we arrive at the final cause. God is one such final cause. If you will allow me a rather weak, perhaps even profane example, he's like the fresh baguette in the baker's cracked window, to which every hungry passerby on the street can't but be drawn. The baguette, steamy and aromatic, entices me to enter the store, and thus acts on and moves me, without itself moving. It's a purely attractive force, an utterly final cause for which I'm made to enter the store and spend my money. I hope you can indulge that, like I said, rather weak example. In a similar way, God acts as a prime mover, himself unmoved. Because he's unmoved and eternal, like the everlasting universe of which he's the cause, so too must he be immutable. If he existed in time, he'd be subject to change, as all temporal things must undergo some alteration. And because he's immutable, he must also be immaterial. Everything that has matter has the potential to change. God is different. He exists in a state of pure actuality. He is form, through and through, without so much as even a touch of matter. Form without matter, prime mover unmoved, pure actuality, 
and the final cause. That's the Aristotelian conception of the deity. Enough. Too much talk of the impenetrable complexities of God. We could spend a lifetime engulfed by and lost in those labyrinthine clouds. Let's return instead from our journey to the heavens and settle our restless feet on the firm, familiar ground below. And now, having done so, let us make haste. The doors to the Lyceum are open, and its famous teacher is indicating that class is about to begin. Today's lesson is as unpredictable as the last, for there is no subject upon which his extraordinary brilliance has failed to shine some light. We need only walk by his side and listen to what he has to say. And there you have it, my devoted friends, everything you could ever want to know about Aristotle in 20 minutes. Four years of university in just over one-fourth of an hour. And now, with all your excess time, go forth, my peripatetics, go forth into the world and share with others this newly gained knowledge. And until that time, feel free to listen to some of my other episodes on Finneran's Wake, on topics such as Sappho, the poetess, and Thucydides, the great historian of the Peloponnesian War. Until then, fare thee well. <laughs>